actually the reality is Trump was a useful idiot. If you are, um, you know, strategist for a huge multinational, you are thinking about these things every day. How do I re-engineer my business, probably less efficiently, to deal with a much more balkanized world? Jack Ma may be uh, patriotic and, uh, you know, bringing, bringing some money back to Hong Kong. He certainly wasn't going to go back and list in, in, in China. China's not going to have a freely convertible currency in my lifetime and probably in the lifetime of my great-grandchildren. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? from markets to mortgages, from policy to politics, and everything in between. Please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The ninth of my conversations was with the dangerously brilliant Dr. Simon Ogus. Simon's one of those people who nobody knows, but everybody who knows him knows he's the person to know. He stays under the radar because his clients prefer it that way, but occasionally he can be tempted out into the sunshine. Simon's PhD in Chinese economic history and development gives him an extraordinary amount of context for today's world, and his 30 years spent living in Hong Kong has given him a close-up view of the transformation across Asia and an incredible understanding of its component parts. So please welcome my friend, Dr. Simon Ogus. Mate, thanks for doing this. Uh, I, I really appreciate you, you agreeing to come and do this because, as I said in the intro, you don't do many of these uh, at all. So, I mean, the first thing I want to really talk about is that, what, what, what it is, why it is you don't do them and what you do do that makes them not that necessary for you. Um, well, there's three reasons, really. I mean, one is obviously uh, you kind of fail to notice that freedom of speech isn't particularly well protected in this part of the world. And... Uh, has hardly been going in the right direction um, under uh, the, the regime in China. So there's a self-preservation element there. But also I believe that that helps with my access to policymakers around the region. I guess also my clients don't want to be sort of going to the gym, but they can't at the moment, and uh, see me on CNBC. The final thing is I'm an ugly bastard as well, but that's a different issue. Your, uh, your, um, your, your clientele are very different. When, when I, we talk to people in finance most of the time, they're used to talking to people that engage with hedge funds and pension funds and allocators, etc. Talk a little bit about the kind of people you talk to and the kind of conversations you have with them, what's interesting to them. I, I mean, I do deal with uh, quite a few of those sorts of clients as well, but I'd say my tendency on the finance side is towards the, the longer-term allocators of capital, you know, the family offices, pension funds, endowments type of thing. The fast money, I'm not a trader, and so if you ask my trading views, it's going to be terrible. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm much more a believer that getting the three or four big macro things every right uh, every year or staying out of the way of things that are going to blow up on you are the, key, the most important things. So I guess that's the mindset. But also, 
I do quite a lot of work with uh, multinational corporations and um, governments around the region as well. Um, but it, in effect, it's the same pitch to all of them, which is you can't trust what's coming out of the investment banks because they're trying to sell you a piece of paper. Uh, so it's better to talk to myself and other very good independents in Asia um, who many cases work off the same sort of basis that I do. Um, because yeah, we may be wrong, in fact, I quite often am, but uh, I'll be wrong for morally the right reasons at least. That's something, but, but when, you, when you cover so many different types of client, um, what have you found in terms of the world we're in now, uh, the alignment of interest, the alignment of questions that those very different kind of buckets of clients have for you, how's that shifted? at the midst of this? I mean, are, are the multinationals asking completely different questions to the investors? And, and what kind of things are, are the different groups focused on? Asking similar questions in different ways, I think. Um, so if, if we go back to the origins of the trade war that uh, Trump kicked off, uh, actually the reality is Trump was a useful idiot in some respects in that the multinationals have been bitching about their treatment in China for a number of years. I mean, it's pretty clear that when Xi Jinping came to power, um, the whole mindset in China changed. It became much more aggressive uh, in terms of protect, projecting its own power. Uh, the, you know, the Deng Xiaoping uh, hide your claws, uh, bide your time mandate was basically thrown out the window. And they had also decided that uh, they, they'd had, uh, the multinationals had made enough money. And to be very fair, the multinationals actually creamed it in in China in the previous decades. So they were putting the squeeze on people. So people, even before the trade war, and then especially in light of uh, their realization that supply chains are over-engineered, were already looking about whether they could diversify some of their business away from China. Now, What's also occurred to them is that if you're going to get uh, tra tra tariffs being put up, barriers to trade, both uh, direct and non-tariff non barriers, also you could be looking at uh, restrictions in movement of capital over time. Yet China, again, uh, basically um, has made it a lot more difficult for companies to get money out of China. Mainly that's because they want to stop their own people getting money out of China, but uh, foreign companies and foreign individuals doing business in China are proximate victims of that. Now, if um, you know, in the, in the wake of uh, this viral outbreak, um, once the dust settles, I think that the relationship between America, uh, between the West and China, is likely to be even more poisonous. And therefore, companies are going to have to choose how they engage with China. And I think we're going to go back to a world, in some respects, that prevailed. Pre, pre the lifting of exchange controls in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, you and I are just about old enough to remember this, um, where basically you had to have complete standalone entities to deal with your Latin American business or your Chinese business, not, not in those days because nobody was doing business in China, uh, or your Indian business. So if you look at some of the Asian stock markets or the African stock markets, there's some very nice legacy companies which foreigners love today which actually came out of that period. So Rothman's Malaysia, uh, which is now delisted, you know, that was that was the cigarettes uh, producer down there. Um, Hindustan Lever is still a foreigner's favorite in, in India. 
Guinness Nigeria, I believe, was listed, and Guinness Zimbabwe was uh, uh, knocking around for quite a while. So I think what, what multinationals are thinking about is, okay, we don't want to disengage from China completely because it's a huge bloody market. Uh, I mean, you know, we all know the numbers. Um, we see an opportunity in places like India, Indonesia, or other big markets in Asia, um, but we might have to set up separate entities for that. Um, we can't move everything out of China, but the survey suggests that maybe 20%, if, maybe if it's only 10% of the capacity that's in China at the moment, is looking for another home. And 10% of China's capacity is a big number for everyone else. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. So the opportunity space, once the dust settles, is to say, which are the countries that have the absorptive capacity to offer a friendly investment environment, not for financial capital necessarily, although the two tend to go semi hand in hand, but more in terms of um, better protection of property rights, intellectual property, uh, availability of land, decent labor markets, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you can do a China plus one or a China plus two or three uh, strategy. And I think people are having, I'm not a Latin American expert or a European expert, but people are having the same discussions, I think, in Europe and in Latin America. You know, um, do, you, do you go to somewhere, you up your stakes in somewhere like Turkey or where in Latin America, where would you want to use, you know, is Mexico a winner out of this? Um, you know, it's, it's not something that people are immediately thinking about in financial markets, but if you are, um, you know, strategist for a huge multinational, you are thinking about these things every day. You're thinking near term about, can I get my production to market? Have I got labor? But in the medium term, actually, how do I re-engineer my business? Probably less efficiently to deal with a much more balkanized world that we're probably going to. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think we, when we're in the financial world, we, we get way too caught up in, in assuming that the world is in stasis and we have to plan our strategy around it. But, but obviously thinking about the way these companies have to plan. Is that a QPR, Mark? How dare you? You can't put that in front of a Fulham fan. Um, you know, when you look at this from, from the, the, the multinational business point of view, how, as I go through that process, how is that going to be received by China? Because obviously, if, if a lot of this business is moving out of China, one imagines it, it will get to a point where that causes a problem for the Chinese, how do they potentially react to that? Well, nobody's admitting they're actually leaving China and nobody's going to shut right. down completely China. Well, that, that's probably not true. If, if you're making low-end, um, you know, TV sets or whatever, you've probably left China already. I think Samsung, for example, completely disinvested their handset business from China over the last few years. And um, Vietnam, is one of the biggest production centers for them now in the world. Vietnam's a darling, but Vietnam can only take us so much. Intel's got one of the biggest factories in the world in Vietnam. And again, it's been a, a, a reallocation of, of, of that capital. Um, no, you're basically going to say to the Chinese officials, we love you very much, um, but you know, this is the reality we're dealing with. We're still committed to China. We're still going to put resources here, but at the margin, we might put some other resources other way. Because you've seen yourselves in China that an over-reliance on over-engineered supply chains can bite you in the balls as well. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a discussion that um, the officials in China are, are, are doubtless having. And the feedback I'm getting from uh, companies at the moment is actually the Chinese officials are bending over themselves to be nice to multinationals. Uh, maybe, that, maybe that's temporary because they just need them to help China get up working again. 
But I think there's a realisation, and there's been, been plenty of people in the Chinese bureaucracy who have been against Xi Jinping's policies, but he's just steamrolled it all up opposition over the last few years. There's plenty of people in the more reformist camp, um, and everything's relative in China, but uh, who, who basically are not supportive of the state advancing and the private sector retreating, as the saying goes. Yeah. So, so, so where do where do these people go? I mean, where, who does have that absorptive capacity in Asia still? I mean, is, is it, it, it feels like it's going to be like spread out right across the region because no one can really replace it. Yeah, and it depends on which industry. It depends on whether it's labour-intensive or capital-intensive. So, for example, India's got all sorts of problems at the moment, a lot of them self-inflicted because they screwed up on the banking sector, uh, non-bank sector, um, sector problem. We've seen, that, we've seen that movie before in other places. Yeah. Reality is it's actually a very small part of GDP, and if they were to set up some sort of resolution trust corporation, you could sort out the Indian problems very, very easily. It's just for whatever reason... Modi has been concentrating on, uh, you know, his Hindu nationalist agenda. So, yeah, Modi's not a particularly nice fellow either. I mean, there's there's, there's quite a few strange people in this part of the world, shall we say? Yeah, right. countries. Um, but if you're running capital-intensive industries, uh, India's been a great place to invest in the last few years because Modi uh, has got a record as a reformer when he ran Gujarat, which was India's most open state. Mm -hmm. um, he's basically said to the states, look, you, can, you don't have to wait for us to tell you what to do on labor, on land. You can go and, rather like China did with the special economic zones back in the 70s and 80s, you can experiment. And there's, therefore, there's a competition now between the different states to get investment in. Some are still stuck in the 60s but others are getting money in. And so therefore in things like car parts, aerospace, uh, India, India on a net basis, I think was one of the highest FDI recipients last year over the, over the last five years. So, you know, it's not great if you're a small Indian businessman at the moment, but capital is going into India. Where India is lacking and Indonesia, the other big labor market is lacking, is that labor reforms uh, are right. stuck in the seventies. Um, so the hope is that in India, uh, in the second term in uh, Indonesia, Jokowi is pushing through or trying to push through an omnibus uh, labor and tax reform bill through the parliament at the moment. You know, if they could get their act together and make uh, employing and employing labor and getting rid of labor more easy, um, you know, there's, there's a good, re good re uh, uh, chance they could pick up. Yeah. Um, yeah, some better, but at the moment, it's going to Vietnam. Uh, in textiles, it's been going to places like Cambodia and Bangladesh. Um, Malaysia and Thailand are two interesting ones, two, two horrible political situations, but countries which traditionally had very good manufacturing bases for multinationals. In fact, those manufacturing bases are still very good. It's just that there's been no net new investment there because everything was going to China or Vietnam. But they have a, because they have a history of delivering and because they're operating below full capacity, you are starting to see money go back into those places, notwithstanding the politics, whereas, you know, the equity guys just haven't wanted to know about Malaysia. Yeah. Or, or and then further north, the story is re-onshoring. It's, um, you know, China's moving up the value-added chain. China's becoming a direct competitor for Japanese, Taiwanese, Korean companies in many areas. And so these guys are basically to protect their intellectual property, but also to can protect themselves from China's capricious policies because, you know, you saw China shut down the Korean tourist industry a yeah, couple of years yeah. ago. 
or the Japanese um, car industry got concerned. You know, you know, China China's good at sort of kicking off the anti-Japanese or the anti-Korean riots when it feels like it. And so you've actually seen in Japan and especially Taiwan, but notably not Korea, where unfortunately Jeremy Corbyn is already in charge. Um, basically, big increases in capex as people have been re-onshoring because the labour differential between China and uh, Japan um, and and Taiwan is is much less than it was, um, and they feel much more secure in their supply chains now. Then the question is, what does America do? You know, is America going to basically uh, turn a blind eye to uh, people really not producing in China, but actually producing in China? And, you know, the rebooking and, you know, a few of the countries have been called out on this already. Um, I think it all depends on who's in the White House um, after November. But irrespective, I think that the free pass that China had in the previous decade isn't coming back anytime soon. And therefore, the companies know that they have to basically um, just re-engineer. And this is going to be a multiple year issue. But at the moment, obviously, getting um, attention from head office to actually do anything is is quite difficult, even though it should actually be a good opportunity to be going in and buying distressed assets over the next six to 12 months. Yeah, you would think. I mean, from, from a political standpoint, regionally, how does this play out? Because obviously, China's got the muscles to flex. Um, they do carry a very big stick over there. It's interesting that the, the, the you know the Taiwanese obviously we, we know the issues there, but the, the Japanese as well pulling completely away. Is there a point where the Chinese start to throw their weight around a little bit because this becomes a problem for them, or are we a long way away from that yet? Uh, no, we're not a long way away from it at all. And um, historically, when you have financial crashes like this, um, they often are accompanied by um, big rises in political tensions. I, I mean, I mean, put it frankly, and um, you know. Not speaking out of school here because Li Shen Lung, the president of Sing- uh, Prime Minister of Singapore, said this a couple of years ago. Everyone in Asia wants Chinese money and they want American protection. And so the issue is really if the Americans are no longer willing to stay here and play cop, this creates a nasty security void. And the ability for China, sorry, for Japan, Korea, Taiwan to go nuclear just like that, this can become a very dangerous part of the world. Um, doesn't look like that's been the case. America, uh, America's been uh, trying to withdraw its, uh, um, you know, presence in, in the Middle East for sure. Um, Obama's talked about the, uh, you know, the pivot to Asia, and Trump, Trump sort of, you know, hasn't been treating his allies particularly nicely. You know, he doesn't treat anybody particularly nicely, it would seem. But uh, the American military presence on the ground still is a very robust one, and it's building alliances with places like Vietnam, with India, uh, with Japan, Australia. So, so there is an attempt to balance here. Now, I believe that if Trump is not re-elected, and again, I've got no idea whether he's going to be or not, America would actually re-engage with the TPP, or it's now called the CPTPP. Right. Uh, but I mean, in effect, when, the, when, when, when Trump took his ball and went home, uh, Abe, uh, Shinzo Abe in Japan, to his credit, basically picked it up. And as I think there's about seven or eight countries that have actually ratified the TPP, and the door is open for America to come back in. So I suspect if you had a Biden um, presidency, uh, America would actually re-engage with TPP. 
Uh, but I don't think the American, well, I hope the American military presence is not, not going away, not because I'm a great fan of American militarism, but it does provide a useful balance of power at a time when China is increasingly assertive and increasingly flexed his muscles. And you can see every time America's attention isn't really focused, they'll slice away at somewhere else. Yeah. China doesn't want to deal with a, with a group. It wants to deal with each country one-on-one, and you know the bully wants to pick off one by one. So, so how, how is this playing out to the extent that, that, that we, we can talk about it um, from a political uh, point of view within China? Obviously, Xi is a strong man. He's, he's, he's created a very authoritarian um, aura around himself, and his actions have kind of backed that up. How has the, the COVID crisis changed that? Has it strengthened his position? Has it weakened it anyway? I mean, how have you seen that play out from Hong Kong? Well, the first thing that you should always note is that when a white guy talks about um, Chinese politics, he's either being <laughs> or delusional. Um, so I've got no particular insight there. And in fact, the reality is that most of us who go up to China regularly or have done regularly for the last 30 plus years, uh, are finding our access is much, much worse under Xi Jinping uh, because people are just scared to talk to people. So you're generally reliant on people coming out of China and Hong Kong's still a good place uh, to, to make those interactions. It's, it's in some ways the Berlin uh, of, of, of Asia at this stage. Um, having said that, um, the, the, the narrative that China is trying to put in place is a narrative, a bait and switch that they've used many, many times in the past, which was, yeah, maybe there was a few bad officials that covered things up at the outset, uh, but now the central government's come to rescue us. And, uh, you know, the narrative in China, and whether people or not believe this or otherwise, it's clearly being pursued by the state media, is that actually the party has just shown how, much, how useful it is. And if it wasn't for the unique leadership of Xi Jinping, um, that we do that we all, so only only Xi Jinping has the capability of holding China together. Now China is also in a somewhat ham-fisted way trying to export that narrative to the outside world, and it's been helped by the fact and this and this is where there's a lot of anger in Asia. I would I would say at the West, is that you know that you look at the behaviour of the North Asian countries and Singapore, in terms of uh, yeah notwithstanding China covering up. Uh, incompetence at the beginning. The second round reactions in all these countries uh, did manage to flatten the curve in, in, in the vernacular using very different measure, me measures. It's not just the Chinese method that has worked. Um, but reality was that the West basically spent the first two months thinking this is an Asian problem, it's not coming to us. And so therefore, just as Asia was starting to get back on its feet in terms of getting back to work, production, you basically get external demand disappearing. And so people are pissed off that you, the West, in effect, dropped the ball on this one. Um, are they pissed off enough that they're gonna buy into the Chinese narrative that you can only trust China now and the Chinese model is better than everybody else's? Uh, that's a hard ask, you know, when you ship, um, you know, you're, 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 you're shipping masks that you first of all imported back in and respirators you reported back in, back out, and then you find their 40 ones. Uh, you know, China's not very good at soft power. That's, that's the one good thing America still has going for it because, you know, Trump is spunking away a lot of American soft power um, at the moment, but I don't think it's all gone. 
especially if, if, if he's a one-term president. China still hasn't got its act together. It's, it's, it's international propaganda um, uh, efforts are still extremely crude and they don't fill, fill too many people, least of all where I'm sitting for the last 30 years, Hong Kong. Well, let, let, let's talk about Hong Kong because you, you made a very interesting comment there about, about Hong Kong perhaps becoming the, the, the sort of Berlin of Asia, um, which is a, a, a really interesting concept. So, so talk a little bit about life in Hong Kong at the moment because obviously pre-virus, all we saw was you know, the, the, the tension in the streets. And so talk a little bit about that. Uh, but also if you can flesh out that idea of, of Hong Kong being the Berlin of Asia, I, I'd love to explore that. Okay, so... On the healthcare side, Hong Kong is actually probably the single best record in the world at this stage. Uh, we have just crossed a thousand infections. We've only had four deaths, all of which occurred two months ago, all of whom had chronic pre-existing conditions. Um, reality is that, and it's nothing to do with the government action, it's to do with the discipline of the Hong Kong people, given their experience with SARS, they started to adopt policies that, you know, Anglos like you and I basically are, ah, screw it, it's government, they're telling me I'm going to go to the beach. Um, you know, people here were very, we've never had a full lockdown. Um, you know, I can't go out for dinner tonight because I agreed to do this, but I can go out to dinner most nights. Uh, yeah, the restaurants are working at 50% capacity, there's distance between the, uh, the tables, they take your temperature when you go in, got to wash your hands, you know, with sanitizer, etc. But, you know, overall, the public health care system has performed admirably in Hong Kong. Uh, and, you know, Carrie Lam uh, has many, many faults, but she has generally let the public health care guys uh, drive, drive things for the most part. But the problems that allowed the streets to explode in Hong Kong prior to the outbreak have not gone away. And my point I made earlier about China, when it feels the attention is elsewhere, will try and... Um, um, sort of take advantage, it seems pretty clear, and there was a big statement today from the new Hong Kong Affairs, Macau Affairs Office uh, guy, who's one of Xi's fixers, a guy called uh, uh, Law Guang Ying, uh, you should uh, look, look him up. Um, his, his counterpart at the State Council, Xiao uh, Baolong, is uh, an even more um, hardline guy. So, so Xi has put, used the opportunity to put two real hardliners bruisers in charge of Hong Kong. And only today the guy was talking about, yeah, we need to go back to the debate about national security legislation uh, and national education, which was the whole thing that got people on the streets in 2003. You know, Hong Kong has exploded a few times. So we've got legislative elections in um, September, which it looked like despite China's rigging the Democrats might actually have a chance of winning a majority. So they're going around now using the courts to try and systematically disqualify as many of these candidates as they can possibly. And, you know, the reality is that the people in Hong Kong, um, many of them fled from China in the first instance. The last thing they want is a return to what they fled from. My, my mother-in-law would be a very good example of this, who, you know, the family lost everything, swam to Hong Kong. Um, there's more recent people who've come from the mainland, some of whom are still very much um, uh, very supportive of the Communist Party. But it's amazing that when people actually go and live in a free society, and Hong Kong is a very, very free society still, um, they, change, they change their mind. They, they get to read different things and different points, points of view. 
So China, China can deal very easily, and Hong Kong could have dealt very easily with the economic problems here, which is fundamentally that uh, everything is run for the property cartel guys. So average house prices in Hong Kong are 32 times income. You know, it's just mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. London is 16 for what it's worth on the same sort of metric. So, um, you know, in most countries, if it gets above six to eight, it tends to cause a few social ruptures. So you've got basically people have got no hope. Um, the Chinese companies don't want to employ local people. The foreign companies don't want to uh, employ Cantonese either because they don't have good enough English skills, thanks to government policy degrading the education system since the handover. They can't speak Mandarin, and it, especially after the events of the last year, they're just not trusted by the mainland anyway. So I think, in effect, we could see some economic packages being put forward, which will actually try and address some of the economic grievances, but they're going to go even harder line on the politics. And my fear is that while America and uh, Europe are concentrating on other things, China will ram through a much more draconian uh, security environment in Hong Kong, uh, continue to interfere more fully in the judiciary. And, you know, the reality is for the moment, someone like myself, uh, a white guy who doesn't uh, sort of write in the press and certainly doesn't write in Chinese, they probably will find it useful to keep people like myself around um, because, they, you know, Hong Kong, in terms of creating a veneer of normality for business, requires at least uh, uh, the contract law uh, um, working properly. And for the moment, there's been no signs of interference in contract law. And a uh, semblance of international freedom of expression, freedom of association and the like. But for the locals, um, I think it's a terrible position. So I think because China needs Hong Kong as its primary window on the world for capital going in and for laundering their own capital out, um, you know, Hong Kong will actually continue to be fine as, as, as a destination, uh, albeit we may get the, the Berlin issues of intrigue, maybe some Northern Ireland issues in terms of some more terrorist, um, you know, lo localized uh, terrorist groups coming up. It's not what I hope. I'm just saying that what what what, what might might be reality. Um, but the reality is that uh, for the locals, yeah, Hong Kong will be fine, but not for the local people for the most part. And I think that's the tragedy. And the world has abandoned. Uh, but how big a problem is that in, in practical terms for us from the outside? Because obviously um, the makeup of Hong Kong is very diverse but you've got this it's not just Cantonese it's also uh, it's a generational thing right this is a this is a, a a generation of people who've kind of been abandoned and caught in the middle of this what what does that mean in societal terms from the outside in terms of future unrest and future in terms of where internal conflict might come from I think you're gonna have a suppressed underclass I mean you've already got a, uh, an increasingly suppressed underclass um, if you can suspend your social conscience, Hong Kong will be a fine place to do business. Um, you know, you, you and I grew up when the IRA was setting off bombs all over the place, yeah? And people get used to that sort of thing very quickly. And Hong Kong, I should stress, is a remarkably safe city. We only had two deaths during the, uh, the unrest over the last year, both of which were people who unfortunately fell off buildings. So the police have had a bad rap and some of the police behavior hasn't been exemplary, but it's very difficult for a local to understand 
what it's like uh, to actually come up against the police force that really is quite brutal, as you would see on the mainland, or as you and I would have found at Fulham QPR back in the 70s, yeah? <laughs> you know, there was plenty of space to run away because there's nobody there. But so, so, so if we're talking about Hong Kong, um, let's let's just get your perspective on the the peg and and the pressures on it. Because you and I have spoken about this in the past, and and I'm always interested in your view because it's 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 a totally different to a lot of the stuff that you read in the West. People talking about what's happening with the peg, and b it's informed by a whole different set of input. So to just talk a little bit about the peg, whether it's under pressure, whether it's not, and how you see that evolving from here. I wrote a piece about a year ago called The Hong Kong Dollar as a Sideshow. Um, I think the last thing that's going to happen is, is the peg is going to go here. And um, some of the analyses that have come out from the West have been frankly wrong, uh, gratuitously wrong. And I'm not going to get into the, the rights or wrongs about what people have been writing. Reality is, if you have flexible factor markets, and a credible central bank, both of which you have in Hong Kong, a fixed exchange rate can endure a long time because it's it's not the same as just pegging. This is a currency board here. It's a modified currency board, but it's a currency board. So our real estate prices in 97 fell 70% over the next six years. And the financial system didn't really have any major problems. Yeah, a lot of people were into negative equity. The labor market adjusted. Uh, but, you know, the system adjusted. The, the, the problem in Hong Kong over the last 10 years is that you've had a stupid cost of money given to us by America, which is getting even more stupid at the moment, and a stupid um, supply of money coming from China because the um, demand from Politburo members down to buy Hong Kong real estate remains unchecked. So reality is that uh, the factor market that's not really adjusting here is the property market. Um, but if you had basically an abandonment of the artificial supply constraints, you would see a big fall in real estate markets. I think the currency going is, 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 is really not the issue. The, you know, Hong Kong has no real fiscal debt. We have fiscal reserves equivalent to a couple of times GDP, i.e. that's not deficits, that's reserves. So it's a net, it's a net creditor uh, government sector here. Uh, we have FX reserves, um, seven times the monetary base here and about 50% uh, of the money supply. Um, you know, if they want to defend it, interest rates will go up, asset prices will go down. That's the way the mechanism should work, give or take. I think there are things they can do to tweak it. Um, the first would be uh, that, you know, Hong Kong is the IPO center for China. And in the context of the Equitable Act, that's going through in Washington and Chinese companies finding it less friendly to list in America, you're starting to see listings coming back to Asia. How many of them have gone back to Shanghai so far? They will come to Hong Kong. You know, Jack Ma may be uh, patriotic and, uh, you know, bringing, bringing some money back to Hong Kong. He certainly wasn't going to go back and list in, in, in China. Um, reality is this is the one place that China can allow semblance of a free capital market to operate. Now, if you're telling me that China's going to have a freely convertible currency, um, then, yeah, the Hong Kong dollar raisin etc. withers away. And in 2047, the basic law says that the Hong Kong dollar in 97 would circulate as a freely convertible currency separate from the Chinese currency for 50 years. It said nothing about a peg. But if you had basically a much more convertible RMB, 
in uh, 20 years or so from here. Um, and, you know, one country, two systems could become one country. Um, then, yeah, the Hong Kong dollar can disappear. But the reality is, you know, China's not going to have a freely convertible currency in my lifetime and probably in the lifetime of my great-grandchildren. It, you know, Leninist systems don't do free movements of capital. In fact, unfortunately, it looks like we're going back to Leninist systems everywhere else. Yeah, that's a great point. So what is it about the Hong Kong dollar peg that people in the West seem to miss? Because it's, you know, whenever I talk to you, it seems so straightforward and it, and it makes perfect sense. What is it that people in the West, what, are they looking at it the wrong way? Is there a key input that they're missing? Why, why, why is the, the view from on the ground so different to that from afar? I think to be fair, there's plenty of people in the West who understand how it works as well, but um, they're not the ones that necessarily shout the loudest, shall we say. Um, I don't, look, I think I said it before, it's, it's basically free, um, freely moving factor markets. You know, if you if you want to fix your exchange rate, everything else has to be out, allowed to adjust. Now, as a um, as an international financial centre, uh, where a great deal of the financial activity is nothing to do with the Hong Kong dollar, um, that's that doesn't it, it's it's irrelevant. You know, our our physical exports to GDP are tiny at this stage. A lot of it, and most of it is transshipments anyway. I I didn't finish on the IPO issue, but from a capital market perspective. If China really wanted to deepen the RMB's usage offshore, they would say to the Hong Kong exchange, you should re-denominate uh, Hong Kong-listed um, Chinese companies into RMB. Chinese companies that want to issue bonds in Hong Kong should do it in RMB, not in dollars. But at the moment, you know, I, I mean, I've seen lots of debates on your, your platform and obviously uh, on Real Vision about, yeah, the dollar is going to be eclipsed by the RMB. Um, but reality, you know, Luke, 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 the other day, Luke and I have spoken a lot on this. But reality is, you know, no one trusts the RMB, least of all the Chinese themselves. Um, so can it become a secondary reserve currency uh, akin to, say, how the, the Deutschmark or, or the yen have been in the past? Yeah, sure. And Hong Kong would be the best place to provide the platform for that to occur, uh, which would actually take some of the immediate you know, capital markets pressures off the peg. Um, did the Chinese like having a money laundering place with a hard currency? Absolutely. So, so in, amidst all this, the one place that people seem to just be overlooking recently for some reason that escapes me is Japan. Now, people have kind of, it almost feels like they've written Japan off. It's like, well, yeah, we know about the debt and we know about the demographics and we know about all that stuff. And it, and it just doesn't feel like people think it's that relevant anymore. How is Japan from an Asian perspective and what do you see happening there? Let me give you a politics and then an economics answer to that. Um, I'm sure many of the people tuning in today have got no idea whatsoever about the family history of the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister of Japan. Um, Mr. Abe's grandfather was a fellow called Kishi Nobuseke. Uh, who was uh, the chief bureaucrat in charge of occupied Manchuria during the 1930s. He was interred as a, a, a class A war criminal by the Americans at the end of the war. Uh, and then they decided he was smart and communism was a big problem. So he was rehabilitated and became prime minister twice. Uh, his deputy, Aso Taro, uh, comes from the Aso industry families, which were the biggest users of slave labor in the coal mines. So I'd submit to you that if, you know, um, 
Goebbels' granddaughter was basically the uh, Chancellor of Germany and the IG Farben dynasty were the was the deputy chancellor. It probably wouldn't go down very well in Europe. Now, the Germans have spent, you know, almost a century now apologizing for their behavior. Um, the Japanese don't make it easy for themselves. But, you have to, but people need to understand that the unreconciled history in this part of the world, and they're all guilty of it, Chinese narrative is disgraceful, the Korean narrative is disgraceful, the Japanese narrative is doubly disgraceful. And having someone like Abe and Aso around is a lightning rod. So until these guys shuffle off the scene, um, the, the distrust of Japan is going to be there in the background. People don't trust China and they don't think Japan is going to invade them anytime soon. But you see with Korea and Japan, who really should be working together. They just can't. They can't resist basically picking up old scabs all the time. So that political backdrop is extremely important for people to understand about how Japan is seen within the region and how Japan engages with the region. From an economic point of view, um, just to go back, I, I had the choice in 89 to relocate to either Tokyo or Hong Kong. Uh, and I chose Hong Kong because Japan looked like a huge bubble to me at the time. And I couldn't actually see, even if it wasn't, how I could afford to live there, even though the salary I was being offered like, was about three times what I was being paid in London at the time. So, yeah, it was a good choice, good macro, good macro allocations um, decision to come to Hong Kong. And frankly, for until, until Koizumi came on the screen as the scene, Japan was basically still digesting very slowly through um, its slow motion uh, deflation of the bubble. But actually, in the last 10 years, and this is where Abe does deserve some credit, there's actually been some quite meaningful reforms for the better in Japan. Um, I'm not talking about Kuroda and his quantitative QQE is the most powerful monetary policy of all time uh, thing. I think you know the Bank of Japan shows us which rat hole we shouldn't be going down, because Japan's had zero interest rates and QE since 1996, and 30 fiscal stimulus packages since the bubble burst. And uh, it's given us 240% of GDP government debt, but not a, not a great deal else. But it's the micro supply side reforms that are very interesting in Japan. So anyone that's spent any time in Japan will know it's a pretty racist place and it's a pretty misogynist place. And over the last five to 10 years, Japan has become somewhat less racist and somewhat less misogynist, i.e. a few more foreigners are allowed to work there. You can't call them immigrants, they're guest workers, a bit like the, uh, the German Gestarbeiter. Um, but there are more foreigners around, not necessarily in finance, interesting enough, but in other, in other areas. Uh, and equally, uh, they've decided that it's actually a good thing to use one of the most educated cohorts of women, somewhat better than just serving tea and bowing nicely to people who come to reception. And so therefore, if you do company meetings now in Japan and even going to some of the ministries, Chances are you'll be actually in a meeting that's being led by a lady, or effectively led by a lady, simply because they, their English tends to be better, uh, yeah. and they tend to be more user-friendly. So what we've seen is that with more, you know, but the women, is, the women are still unfortunately paid significantly less than the men on average. That's where the sexism endures. Uh, the immigrants are paid less. But if you think about it, more lower-paid uh, immigrants, more part-time workers, more ladies entering the workforce in higher paying jobs, all mean that household income goes up even if that biases down average wages. So 
real household income growth in Japan has been two to three percent per annum over the last years. Japan's been one of the places where actually, um, you know, the household sector hasn't had to gear up. In fact, the household sector's de-geared over the course of the last 20 years. Then you put in place on top of that, this is the final point, on uh, corporate governance in Japan. Um, and, you know, I don't think many Japanese companies truly believe that corporate governance is something they should do. But when they're told to do it, it's like, you know, be individuals. Yes, we're all individuals in the life of life. And uh, the average, you know, returns on equity are improving cyclically, you know, smacked, obviously, in the, in, in the next year. Um, but, you know, this is not an expensive uh, asset market. It's got the best balance sheet in the OECD, excluding the government sector. It's got social cohesion, which most places in the West would kill for. Uh, and I think it's generally moving in the right direction. The problem is the experiment Japan has gone through and probably will take to the next stage is not something I think that could be easily replicated elsewhere. So the, the old quip, you know, which is there's four types of economy, developing, developed, Argentina and Japan still holds. And uh, uh, my fear is that Japan is going to lead us down a route and people say, oh, it's working in Japan. We can try it in the West. And that's going to be an absolute shit show. Well, I mean, that's always been my my contention too, that people are going to look at the Japanese model and say, well, you know, it's worked out okay for them. I mean, it hasn't been brilliant, but they haven't fallen into the sea. Um, and, I, and I agree with your point. I think that is the problem. But, but what, you know, it's interesting when you talk about how good the corporate balance sheet is, what, what, what relatively good shape that side of the economy is in. And then, you know, like everybody, we all just kind of dismiss the government side. We dismiss the central bank. We dismiss that stuff. How important is the state of the, the, the country's balance sheet and can it be ignored by us looking at the corporate level? There's four sectors of the balance sheet you need to um, understand. So the first is the non-financial corporate sector, which, uh, as I said, is actually in pretty good nick. And even the, even the banks, I mean, they're not very, not very profitable and the, the regional banks are not particular, are actually going to have real problems as a result of what's been going on at the moment. But it's not a banking crisis that's going to, in my, in my opinion, that's really something that's going to be festering tomorrow. Second, um, sec second uh, is the um, household sector. And as I said, you know, household debt's about 90% of disposable income at the stage, less actually, probably 80. You know, uh, America went pop at 140. The UK is still about 160, 170, something like that. So, you know, Australia, where you lived, is 180, I think. So, you know, it's, it's not a, yeah, so the, the, the households are in good shape. They've got net foreign assets uh, on a national basis of twice GDP, uh, probably less than twice GDP after the, the drawdown, where both the denominator and the numerator have gone down. But, uh, you know, so the, the issue is really the government sector. Uh, now, the Bank of Japan has been steadily de-risking the banks over the last few years to the extent that the government sector now, sorry, the Bank of Japan now owns something like 45 to 50% of the JGB stock. The public pension funds, the banks have largely been taken out of their JGB positions. So if you think what the Fed is doing at the moment with the credit markets is exactly the same trade albeit they've been doing largely in the public sector. Forget the stuff about buying REITs and equities. So that's only marginal. The balance sheet of the BOJ is 80 to 85% Japanese government bonds. Now, if they own 50, let's, let's make the numbers easy. So let's say government debt is 240% of GDP and the Bank of Japan owns 50% of that. 
basically you've got 120% of GDP in government bonds sitting on the BOJ balance sheet. And this is where the cancellation issues come in. There's no such thing as a free lunch. If you just cancel government debt that's held um, not by the non-central bank sector, you also have to sort of recapitalize the pension funds, insurance funds, etc. So in effect, you've got to basically have a grown-up discussion with your population about reducing future pension promises, uh, increasing retirement ages, and a, an ethnically homogenous society um, where you don't have flighty um, capital going overseas at the first sign of danger can probably have that discussion. But the BOJ stuff, yeah, you write off the debt of the BOJ, the central bank will have to be recapitalized. No doubt about it. But let's say the cost of recapitalization is 10% of GDP. I do believe that that is the one way you can eliminate some of this, this government debt. Uh, I'm not saying it's, it, it could work. I mean, I may be wrong that you might see an absolute run for the door if people thought this wasn't going to be just a, um, restricted to the central bank. But I think Japan at least has a sporting chance of getting away with this. I've debated this back and forth with people at the VOJ and other people in Japan over the years. And it's sort of intellectually an exercise that a lot of people have been through up there. But nobody wants to basically risk it. But I, my, my fear is, as I said, somebody else is going to risk it in, 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 in the rest of the world. And um, that's when capital controls have to be basically put in place in, 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 in countries that haven't had them for 30, 40 years. You know, what, what, one place that we haven't really spoken about, and it hasn't even come up, I think, except maybe you mentioned it once, is Singapore. You know, this is somewhere that um, there's, we've always had this Hong Kong-Singapore kind of tug of war. Um, what's happening in Singapore? How has the Hong Kong situation affected it? Has it affected it positively? And how is it, because it's kind of sitting there, the pivot point between this China-US trade war. How is Singapore coming out of all this? Well, most smart people in Hong Kong have never banked in Hong Kong. Uh, they've always banked in Singapore. Uh, and uh, some less smart people are now deciding that they should be banking in Singapore as well. Now, the Singapore government's been quite subtle, and, and there was a big notice that went out to the government of agency officials and bankers. Is You're not allowed to be seen to be touting for business when Hong Kong's got problems. This was last year. Uh, so they weren't really touting at all. But the numbers don't lie. Uh, there's some new legislation that went in place, which makes setting up a family offices uh, very, very friendly and welcoming, passport or resident, full-time residency attached. Uh, you've got to employ a certain number of Singaporeans to take advantage of it. But I know multiple families uh, in Hong Kong who basically are in the process of establishing family offices in Singapore. Um, you know, I said Berlin for Hong Kong. You know, the gnomes of Zurich are uh, the gnomes of Singapore in that sense. Um, I think Singapore probably is the one that has to play that dance between China and America, and at the same time, the dance with its own neighbors in ASEAN who don't like Singapore very much either. Um, the most careful, uh, and the PAP, you know, for all their faults, um, you know, you've got to say that they're the, clear, the nearest we have had to a idealistic Confucian uh, government uh, over time. So I wouldn't bet against Singapore. It seems to me that uh, if somewhere is gonna be left standing, assuming in America and China don't go into full-blown fisticuffs, Singapore comes out of this uh, smelling pretty well.
So as Emma, we, we, we're almost out of time. Just to kind of wrap this up, for, for people outside Asia looking at the region, what are the three or four flashpoints, stress points they really ought to be focused on? Because there's so much uh, media here in the West about China. It's all about China. Uh, what are people missing and where should they be looking for, for, for potential movements that are going to be important down the track? I think, I think some of the fears about China are justified. Um, you know, China is in a much weaker balance of payments position than at any time since the early 1990s. When China was a decade ago running current account surpluses and FDI surpluses approaching 10% of GDP, it really didn't matter very much what foreigners thought about China. Today, China runs uh, an FDI plus current account balance, roughly in balance, maybe 1% of GDP surplus, 1% deficit from time to time. Under Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive, corruption's actually got worse. Uh, you know, non-FDI um, non flows out of China have accelerated hugely under Xi Jinping, which tells you that the people who least trust Xi Jinping are the people who think they might be the next one to get the knock on the door from his goons. So therefore, China's actually been far more dependent on the kindness of strangers over the course of the last four or five years. Why do you think China is trying to get people to raise their weightings in MSCI China A shares or buy the bonds in the bond connect and the like? Um, you know, uh, be very careful when a country is asking you to invest when its own people are taking money out the other side. So if there is a sudden stop of ca um, China's outstanding uh, external uh, bond issuance and loan issuance is about two and a half trillion US dollars at this stage. So if there's a sudden stop of capital going into China, um, you know, the first, the first implication will be where well, they're going to tighten capital controls even more. But if things really, if that causes a big monetary contraction in the end, uh, you know, the RMB could come into play. I don't think it's imminent, but the RMB does work, bear worth watching. Second, I'd say is look at what happens uh, post the election. Uh, I'm not saying that one candidate is better than other from an economic perspective domestically in America, but I think from an international security perspective in terms of rebuilding alliances, re-engaging with TPP, um, shoring up, being nice to the allies again in Asia. Uh, I'm not sure a second round of Trump would be particularly helpful. And as I said, China is looking at this vacuum of leadership in the West and saying, where can I take advantage in the current environment? So that would be the, the political flashpoint. And then the third thing, I think, final thing would be that I know it was a bit of a geeky uh, description, but I think Japan will be the first one to have a go at some debt cancellation over the next couple of years. Uh, and if they get away with it, um, watch what happens. Watch this space uh, elsewhere. Just, just want to say one last question. Someone's actually brought it up exactly the same time I was thinking about it. When you talked about China trying to bring people in uh, to its orbit, Belt and Road, how is that viewed from Asia? Because the initial press when it came out the gates, was it was wholly positive. Um, and that, I guess, as, as one could have expected, has changed over time and it's now uh, the coverage it's getting is, is less friendly. Is that media slant or is that on the ground something where that's, it's kind of the bloom is off the road? It's a bit of a curious egg and I think you have to distinguish between money going south and money going across, the, across Central Asia. Um, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on Central Asia. 
Um, certainly have spent quite a bit of time in Pakistan over the time. And frankly, what China's doing through Central Asia, creating corridors and indebtedness and, um, uh, you know, military, military bases and the like, uh, is a good old-fashioned colonial ga- grab. And it's facilitating an awful lot of corruption amongst Central Asian and Pakistani leaders, which probably helps keep the London property market and other places afloat. Because um, I don't see this stuff being particularly productive, but it's a way of China projecting power. I and mean, in the European context, look what they're doing in uh, Hungary, for example, or, uh, yeah, but, but, you know, in more open societies, you get quicker pushback, as we've seen in, say, the Czech Republic versus Orban in, in, in Hungary. The stuff south is more nuanced. Uh, as I said, people like Chinese money. They don't necessarily like China being the only bidder in town. And so, therefore, what we've started to see is Japan, Korea, Taiwan, other countries also started to bid for the same contracts. And the smart countries in Southeast Asia, India, basically create beauty parades where you've got everyone bidding against each other. And therefore, in effect, you can get something built at lower cost and actually probably with greater transparency. So if the net result of basically China getting into a more transparent bidding war with the Japanese anywhere in the world to build railways, they can come in and reap HS2 if they can do it in the UK. I mean, the Brits aren't going to do it on their own, are they? I mean, the American railway system needs to uh, basically be rebuilt. Um, yeah, I'm not sure Chinese capital is going to be the one that's going to be allowed into some of these places. But, you know, China is, there is some genuine investment intentions uh, from, from Chinese companies. Yeah, the politics is always in the background. I mean, you can't, you can't ignore that. There's a national security element, party control element to absolutely everything that happens coming out of China. But as a recipient country, if it's done in a relatively transparent way, in a sense of open, more open competition, actually, everyone can be a winner out of it. Fantastic. Simon, listen, uh, perfect. Right on the bell. Seven o'clock or eight o'clock for you. Uh, listen, thank you so much for, for doing this. I, I know it's not what you do normally, so I really appreciate you giving me this hour, particularly as it means you couldn't go out to dinner. Uh, hopefully you and I get to actually sit and have a, a beer and a bite to eat in person again, so I don't know when that's going to be, but I look forward to it. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. Pleasure. Good night, all.